That's good. All right. How's everybody doing? So everyone looking really nice today. Today, uh, the Itaewon campus is celebrating White Day. A month ago, for Valentine's, I heard that the, the ladies uh, served the gentlemen and really uh, treated them as the princes that they are. The kings. I'm sorry, the kings. Yeah, we're not, they're not just raising boys. We've got men in here. Because ladies don't want to marry the boys. They want to marry men. Make sure y'all know who you are, men. And one month later today, we have all of the men that have decorated the sanctuary beautifully and have dressed up to serve the ladies today. So praise the Lord. I told Hillside Campus about what's going on today, and they were so jealous. They were like, why don't we think about that? What's going on here? Oh, my pen's jacking up my suit. All right. Yeah. So everyone looking very nice. And, uh, you know, if, if my schedule's free, maybe uh, I'll stick around. You know, I, I'm not a lady, so I don't know. I can't get served, but, you know. All right. Is it pizza school tonight? Is that the menu? Well, it sounds like the brothers prepared the dinner then. I mean, I mean, the sisters. What? Oh, last month was pizza school. Last month was chicken. Oh, I see. The girls will eat pizza school. Oh, I'm sorry. The girls are getting served tonight. So the boys will eat pizza school, scarf it down, and serve the ladies a better menu, which we will find out about. I'm sorry about that. All right. Clear that all up. All right. Very good. All right. So, hey, let me get more of my man. Come on. Man, come on now. I'm going to start with this. The world is like the Titanic. It has hit an iceberg and the ship is sinking. Everybody on the, on the ship needs to get on a lifeboat and escape the doom that is to come. If you, don't, if you try to stay on the ship, you're going to perish because it's a sinking ship. There's no use in trying to rearrange the furniture or try to decorate the curtains or whatever. What's the point? The Titanic is going to, sh- to sink. <laughs> the shink. <laughs> I've been in Korea too long. Sink. This is one way to view the world. Since the w- world is like the Titanic and it's going to sink, let's forget about trying to reform the education system. Forget the government. Forget the entertainment industry. Forget trying to start a business. Let's push all of our resources to evangelism and missions because people are going to hell unless we go out and evangelize. So if you say something like, I want to start a business, we tell you, no, forget about it. The world is going to perish. I have a dream to be a singer. Forget about it. Forget your selfish dreams and put all your resources to evangelism. Okay. Now, I shared this at the Hillside campus and people were like, yeah, amen. That's... 
not knowing that it was a setup, right? Obviously, obviously, I, I think, you know, I've discipled uh, the sons and daughters in this house enough for you guys to know that that was not the view of the father of this house. And you know that that's not the view that our church holds. But this is a very popular view that evangelical Christians today have of the world. There is two possible attitudes that Christians can adopt towards the world. In my ethics class, uh, reading a book by John Stott, and he presents two basic views that Christians had, can have toward the world. One is called escape. Everyone say escape. escape. Second is engagement. Everyone say engagement. engagement. Escape involves turning our backs to the world and hardening our hearts to the cries of the world for help. That's escape. Engagement involves reaching out to the world in compassion, whether they're Christian or not, or whether they're going to come to Christ or not. We reach out to them in compassion, even when it's costly or inconvenient. That's engagement. Escapism is the view that I summarized above in my Titanic analogy. The world is going to perish. The world is going to perish what is the use of trying to reform the world? What's the use of trying to reform our education system in America, in Canada, in Korea? What's the use? The whole world is going to end. And this is the view that most evangelicals are focused on in many of today's churches. It's the escape mentality. Many evangelical Christians, they have very little sense of social responsibility today. Their only focus is on missions and evangelizing the lost. They focus on verses like Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They focus on verses like Mark 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so the emphasis, the focus... The resources, they all go toward evangelizing and doing missions. Because that's what really matters in the perspective of eternity. Hey, the things I'm saying right now are not incorrect. They're not, they're not incorrect. They're true. In an eternal perspective, what really matters are the souls of men. So we should focus on evangelism and missions. But what the church fails to do is they forget that the same Jesus who said those things is the same Jesus who said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, last week, I, I preached a message at Hillside called Salt Shaker Christianity. And in that, I talked about how Christianity has deteriorated into a very institutional form of religion. Where instead of producing disciples who follow Christ, disciples who pray, Disciples who study the Bible for themselves, instead they just have people that go to Bible studies, that go to prayer meetings. And Christians, instead of growing and nurturing their own individual faith, they depend on the institutions of the church to kind of do faith for them. So I was talking about how if the only time you pray during the week is at the prayer meeting, I don't care if you faithfully come out to Sunday swim, Friday fire, join prayer meeting, every single prayer meeting you could think of, you go to. If that's the only time you pray is at the prayer meeting, there's something fundamentally wrong with your Christianity. 
you've turned your Christianity into a bunch of programs, into participation into a bunch of programs. And so I talked about how that is what I call salt shaker Christianity. Where Christians, they just bunch up into the salt shaker and they shake themselves around in the shaker and they feel good about themselves, but they never get out the salt shaker. <laughs> They're positive influence within the four walls of the church, but at the moment they get outside the four walls of the church, they're like lot, zero influence. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't say you're the salt of the church. He said, you're the salt of the earth. And if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Isn't that a good picture of some people's Christianity? Their witness is so weak. Their Christian faith is so institutionalized that they just get trampled by people. The moment they start talking about anything spiritual, they get trampled on. And that's such a good picture. When you lose your saltiness, that's what happens. You get trampled under people's feet. But that's not what Jesus painted of us. He said, no, you're the salt of the earth. And if you didn't get the point from that analogy, he goes on in verse 14 of Mark, Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let me ask you a question. What is the world like? Some people will say, well, the world is scary. Oh, scary. The world is fun. Yeah, party. The world is confusing. Can't figure anything out. A lot of people agree and say, well, the, the world is pretty dark. It's a pretty dark place. But check this out. Jesus said, well, you're the light of the world. You're the light of that dark world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So the same Jesus that said, go and make disciples of all nations, go and preach the gospel to all creation, is the same Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And what, this, these are Jesus' words, but what were Jesus' actions like when he was on the earth? Well, Acts 10.38 says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. They don't say he only healed those who he foresee coming to Christ, coming to faith. He, he didn't say he just uh, healed all those who were uh, uh, not atheists. I don't know. Like, you know, he healed all who were oppressed of the devil. That means if they were believing in the God of Molech or the God of uh, Krishna or, or, or the uh, Baal, whatever God they had back then. Those are not the gods of that time, by the way. I know my history. Okay, I'm sorry. I just spent now random gods. He didn't turn them away. He healed all who were oppressed to the devil. That's, that's why people in evangelical Christianity, when they get awakened to the teachings on physical healing, a lot of times they're so geared toward what I talked about with the Titanic analogy that even when they pray for the sick on a mission trip or in a third world country, oftentimes they will withhold praying for the sick until that person opens their heart to the gospel. Because they think praying for the sick, its sole purpose is to open the way for the gospel to be preached. 
And it's so funny. In the, in the, there's a movie called Finger of God. In the movie Finger of God, uh, you have uh, this minister who's going around praying for the sick. And it's in the country of Turkey. Now, what do the vast majority of people in Turkey believe in? They're, they're Muslims, right? And so obviously, they're going door to door. The lady who's coming out and, and being willing to receive prayer for healing, she's not a Christian. She's a Muslim. And she's not interested in Christianity because she's going to probably get disowned by her family. Now, this minister knows that. And she's like, it's okay. You don't have to become a Christian. You don't even have to listen to what I have to say. I just want to pray for you. I just want to demonstrate and manifest the love of God, the goodness of God to you through your physical healing. But the translator refused to translate that for her. And he kept preaching to her and saying, you got to believe this gospel. you got to listen to our gospel message. And she was like, no, I'm a Muslim. And so he was like, well, we're not going to pray for you. And so she's like, to the translator, it's like, what are you doing? Just translate what I say. <laughs> Why? Because that translator has such that titanic evangelical mindset. He thought physical healing, the only purpose is to get people saved. Now, that is one of the purposes, by the way. It's not the only purpose. I'm telling you right now, man, there are plenty of people Jesus healed in his lifetime that never put their faith in him. He didn't say your sins are forgiven to everybody. There were lepers that were cleansed that came back to thank him. There are plenty of lepers that didn't. They're just happy they got, they got cleansed. Jesus never saw them again. The Bible says he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed to the devil. The Bible also says in 1 John 3, 8, awesome memory verse. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Oh, come on now, right there. Turn to your neighbor, tell him, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Come on, come on. Right there. John Stott said it like this. He said, Our God is a loving God who forgives those who turn to him in repentance. But he is also a God who desires justice. And he asks as his people not only to live justly, but to champion the cause of the poor and the powerless. If you read all throughout the scriptures, the heart of God goes out to the oppressed, goes out to the poor, goes out to the orphan and widow. Why would God use particularly the orphan and the widow? Because in the cultures, in the ancient cultures, the most oppressed and hopeless situation you could be in was to be an orphan or a widow. Because women weren't educated back then. You got widowed. You just lost not only your husband, but your source of income. If you're a child and you get orphaned, even today, if you're an orphan, even here in Korea, if you're a true orphan, when you graduate high school, how are you going to fund your way through college? You can't. Because guess what? Everybody else has a mom and a dad that help out take out a loan or help pay the tuition or if it doesn't have that so what does the orphan do well i can't go to college like everybody else i mean going to college itself it's, it's hard enough to compete 
but I can't even go to college. Well, what are my other options? And that's when the pimps and the gangsters come knocking on their doors. And a lot of these girls that are trapped in the sex industry here, you know, the pimps, they prey on the orphanages. They prey on these places where they know children can be easily exploited. God's heart is to champion the cause of the father, the fatherless, and the, and the widow. And if that's the heart of our God Father, that's got to be your heart. That's got to be the heart of the people of God. Our answer to every oppression and injustice that we see in the world, our answer cannot be just to simplified evangelize to them. Get them saved. I got news for you. Getting people saved is not the answer to change a city or a nation. Now, we, we, we normally think that. Normally think that. But all you have to do is point out of a couple countries in Africa that experienced mass revival. We're not talking thousands. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ within one year. Right? We would think a country that experienced that kind of revival, let's say 300,000 people come to Christ over five years in, in one country in Africa, that country will be reformed. That country will have better education, better government. And doesn't happen like that. Those same countries that experience those mass revivals, they go on to kill each other in the genocide, civil war. They employ children as soldiers. Okay? Evangelism cannot be our only answer. Now, evangelism is a very important part. Don't get me wrong. We've got to preach the gospel and get people saved. We have to understand that being the salt of the earth... It means more than just evangelizing the lost. Let me talk about the natural properties of salt. Salt in the ancient world, and we still use it this way today, but more so back then because they didn't have refrigerators back then. They didn't have ice boxes either. Just letting you know. Just letting you know. And if you're in, living in some desert climate, it's probably hard to get some ice. All right, they didn't have no ice cubes, you know, ice cold Coca-Cola, you know, you didn't have none of that. So they used salt mostly as a preservative. And if you listened to my message last week at Hillside, you will know that back in the ancient world, Roman soldiers were paid partly in salt. That's where we get the word salarium, which is where we get the word salary. <laughs> salt had a lot of value because... It acts as a preservative. It can preserve your fruit, your vegetables, your beef, you know, whatever, right? It can preserve a lot of things, right? Now, Christians have a preservative quality. When Christians are being Christians, you don't have to try to do anything. You just be Christians. If you're being a good Christian, you're going to have a preservative effect on the world around you. What do you preserve? You preserve the value of the family unit because that is a godly value. I tell you that right now. Yeah. Christians preserve morality in a nation. You want to see a nation deteriorate quickly into immorality? You just take all the Christians in that country and you move them out or you kill them off. 
and you will see morality in that country drop significantly, quickly, and to levels of depravity that you've never even imagined. You know, um, sometimes I wonder, I read the Old Testament, I wonder why did God command Joshua pretty much to go into cities and towns and commit genocide? Ever think about that? Does that ever bother you? Am I the only one that reads the whole Bible? I don't like that part of the Bible. I just go to New Testament. It's shorter, easier to read. Am I the only one that reads that part of the Bible? I'm like, man, God, this is harsh. At least let the children live. Let them get an education. Maybe they change. Let the cows live. What the cows do wrong? God be like, kill them all. Burn them all. Don't let any of them remain. What if we melt some of the idols? No, no, no. You get rid of all, burn it all up. Why, why was God so adamant about that? You know why? Here's my theory. It's because at that time, these nations that were on the earth, the grace of God was not dispensed to these nations. Meaning that in these cities and nations, God's people were not there. God was not interacting and working within the hearts of men at that time in these cities in such a way that he will raise up his people in those places. He didn't have that. So what happened? I'm telling you right now, those cities and towns that Joshua destroyed, within those towns was unspeakable horror that will boggle your mind today. Even if you're an atheist in here, even if you're agnostic in here, it would offend you, it would horrify you, the type of depravity that went on inside these cities and towns. And why do cities and towns deteriorate to that place? Because there's no preservative. There's no body there to preserve the morality of that city. God's people provide that moral preserving effect. You take out God's people and you have people sacrificing their children to the God of Molech. Unspeakable horrors. And, you know, we don't have to go very far back, even in history, to see some of the most horrible atrocities that have ever been committed by man took place in the 20th century. Just think about from 1900 to the year 2000. We think as a civilization that we've advanced. Technologically, we're more advanced. We have the Internet. We have airplanes. I mean, things have gotten really good, huh? We got McDonald's. I mean, come on, life is good, right? Well, just look at what happened. When did the first world war take place? Right? Early 1900s. When the second war took place? Just a few years after World War I. <laughs> what happened in Cambodia during the 60s? You guys know what happened in Cambodia? A group, a communist group called the Khmer Rouge were threatened by education and believed that education was evil and that the highest good is among the working class. So we just got to get rid of all the educated people. You know what they did? They rounded up all the professors, all the professionals, and they just mass executed them. These torture chambers. You can go to Cambodia today and still look at all the stockpiles of skeletons 
of all the unidentified professors, teachers that they brutally murdered. I mean, there are horrible atrocities that took place just right around the corner in the last 100 years. We have to remember that when the church forfeits her position, the world becomes a dark place, a darker place very quickly. And why is that? Because we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And when the church forfeits that position and they forget the role that we have in society, that's when we have the next Khmer Rouge. You know, Germany had a lot of Christians when, not, when Hitler took over. You know that, right? Maybe some of them weren't true Christians. I don't know. But there were a lot of Christians in Germany. Why? Germany was a birthplace of the Reformation. Germany produced some of the greatest theologians to date. Because the German language is just crazy like that. You can write theology in German. And you can articulate enormous spiritual revelation. But the birthplace of Reformation and the birthplace of all these great theologians, they quickly start to slide toward liberal theology at the turn of the 20th century. And what happened was, at the, after the effects of the Enlightenment, this is what I'm learning in my history classes, right? After the effects of the Enlightenment, it was a very, there was like a Christendom. Everybody was so Christianized. The culture of that time in Europe was so Christianized. There were a lot of like, just like cultural Christians, you know. And by the effects of enlightenment, everyone started to have an optimistic view of human nature. Meaning that they believe that everyone's inherently good. Give people a chance, they're inherently good. And because there's uh, this enlightenment, there's a, a lot of rational thinkers now. People who are thinking, educated. More knowledge means more morality, means things are going to get better. And then what happened? World War I. And, uh, and after World War I, so many Germans were disillusioned. They were like, we thought this was the answer. Liberal theology with all its optimistic views of men. But they realized, you know what? That wasn't the answer. So what is the answer? And I believe right after World War I, that was the moment in which the church needed to rise up. Because there were the Karl Barts, there were the true German Christian church there. They needed to rise up and say, you know what? That liberal theology, we need to throw that out. We need to get back to biblical, systematic theology. We need to have sound doctrine. Listen to what we have to say. But they didn't do it. They just remained silent. So guess what? Dude named Hitler rose up and said, I got the answer. Listen to me. And they gave these people what they wanted to hear. Hitler gave to them what they wanted to hear. You are the superior race. The Aryan race. And the problem, the reason why we went through so much economic hardship is because of the Jews. Now, such a weird theory, right? How do you connect that? How do you, con how do you connect anti-Semitism out of World War I? But the people believed it. They believed it to the point where even... Church attending Christian boys were throwing Jewish bodies into these huge furnaces for them to be burned. Even with Christians in Germany, Nazis, Nazism happened. And what I'm trying to say is it's not enough for just the country to have churches. 
the churches in that country have to be the salt. They have to recognize their identity and their role in society. It is not just to win converts. Yes, we do that. It's not just to do missions. Yes, we do do that. But we also need to engage society, not escape it. Because when the salt's not there, when man is left up to its own devices, it says in Romans chapter 1, man does all kinds of wicked things. Now, uh, although modern evangelicals have become very complacent with this escapist attitude, this was actually not the attitude of those who went before us. The evangelical revival of the 18th century, it's well known for bringing in a great harvest of souls through George Whitfield, John Wesley, guys like this, right? But what people don't know is it also was known for its widespread philanthropy. For example, John Wesley preached the gospel in such a way that he inspired people to take up social causes in the name of Christ. John Stott says this. He says, Historians have attributed to Wesley's influence rather than to any other fact that Britain was spared the horrors of a bloody revolution like that in France. You guys know about the French Revolution, right? Anybody? Anybody know what took place there? A lot of people got killed. People got dragged out of their homes and killed. It was nasty. It was horrible. And historians say it's Wesley's influence that kept Britain from the same course of action. And then after Wesley, there was a next generation. The next generation continued in their enthusiasm for both evangelism and social action. Let me give you a good example. In the town south of London, there's a group of young men. And they were concerned with the injustice that they saw in the African slave trade that's going on at that time. And they began to engage this issue through parliament, through government positions. And this group of men came to be known as the Clapham Sect. The Clapham Sect. Everyone say Clapham Sect. Clapham. Clapham. All right. And that's the name of the town south of London. That's where they came from. And the most famous among them, William Wilberforce. These men, they contended to see the abolition of the slave trade for 20 years. It took them almost 20 years to see the law passed for the abolition of the slave trade. And then they didn't stop there. They contended for another 20 years to see the freedom of the slaves that were already enslaved. These men, you have to understand that they were wealthy aristocrats. They had nothing to gain from all these, all these endeavors. They could have just continued to go out to church, sing their songs, know their theology, nurture their devotion, and died and gone to heaven. But they engaged these social actions because they had an understanding, a sound understanding of Scripture, that this is a natural overflow of our faith, is to confront injustice wherever it's found. They knew that Jesus called them to be the salt of the earth. 
And they actually went on, how salty were they? They actually went on to not only engage the slave trade, but they also went to seek government reform. They got involved with media education. They sought the rights of poor British colonies. They helped to spread the gospel. They established the Bible Society and the Church Missionary Society. They brought forth factory legislation. And they put an end to gambling and cruel animal sports. Come on now. These are some salty Christians. You know, when, when New Philly church members, when you guys go on toward the end of your life, once you reach the end of your life, I want to see a, like a list of things that you have been engaged in as well. How salty was Jamie Bunn? How salty was Chris Mitchell? Well, let me show you how salty he was. Everyone knows him for ending the human trafficking laws in Korea, but he also went further. He stopped dog fighting in Korea. He, he stopped dog eating in Korea. Chris Mitchell was a salty Christian. Koreans opposed his work. But for 20 years, he contended for the rights of dogs. And I want, I want, to, I want to hear about that kind of stuff. A biographer named Georgina Battiscombe said, Most of the great philanthropic movements of the century have sprung from the evangelicals. Talking about the, uh, the 1800s, right? Now, if this is our heritage, this is the history of the saints, then what happened? Why this shift to escapism? All right, I'm going to just list quickly five reasons that an American historian, Timothy Smith, gives. And he describes this as the great reversal, where the church loses their commitment for social action. He calls it the great reversal. Five reasons. Number one, the fight against liberalism. As liberal theology increased, it resulted in a neglect of evangelism. So evangelicals felt that they had no choice but to be preoccupied with the defense and proclamation of the gospel. They felt like if no one's going to do it, we got to get on it. And they felt like there was no time to do anything else. No time to, for social action. So in their fight against liberalism was one reason. Second reason, the rejection of the social gospel. Uh, there was at that time uh, developed by lib liberal theologians what's called the social gospel. The aim of the social gospel is to bring about a Christian society by social and political action. Now, how many of you guys, you will actually be excited about that? You'll be excited about joining. Like, hey, hey, you guys, you know, there's this island. It's called Jesus Island. <laughs> it's in the middle of Asia. And in this island, it's just a Christian society. And you guys, yeah, check it out. Would you guys be excited to visit that island? Eh, we will be, right? Yeah, why not? It's Jesus Island. <laughs> Come on. But if you studied history, when man has attempted to do this, it's not always been pretty. You know, there's this great um, revivalist. Uh, his name was uh, Alexander Dowie. This guy, man, he moved in signs and wonders. It was powerful. Brought a lot of people to Christ. But one day, man, he just started to lose a little, a little bit, started to go off. You know, he, his prophetic, I guess, wasn't shepherded right, very well. And he started getting all these visions and dreams that he is supposed to be like this, like, Messiah-like figure. 
and he was going to establish kind of his government in a town north of Chicago. And so he took over this town and tried to turn it into this Christian society. And it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Um, so anyway, the social gospel. Christians realized, man, this, is, this sounds weird, smells weird. And then they rejected, they criticized it because there are even people here that uh, in the social gospel movement, they were like, we need, we need to go to a Christian socialism. You know, and so, so evangelicals were like, oh, no, no, thank you. All right, that sounds commie. That sounds communist, you know, and they rejected it. And so they concentrated more on evangelism and personal philanthropy, and they actually abandoned socio-political action because they're afraid of getting identified with the social gospel. That's another reason. Third reason was the impact of the war. There's just so much disillusionment and pessimism after the World War I that the church woke up from its liberal dreams and realized just how depraved man really is. And they thought, well, if man is this depraved, it seems man is immune to reform. So why even try? Okay, it's another reason, the, the war. Fourth was the influence of premillennialism. Uh, and I will qualify this by saying dispensational premillennialism. Everybody say dispensational. dispensational. Okay, Pastor Christian is not dispensational, okay? So let me just say that. Okay? Uh, there's a guy named John Nelson, Nelson Darby. His teachings, uh, which were popularized by the Schofield Bible, in it he portrays the world as a place that is evil and beyond improvement. And only Jesus can come up and fix things and set it up right in his righteousness. And so he predicted that the world is going to steadily deteriorate morally and that Jesus is going to come back and that he's going to establish the world in righteousness. So this caused that, that kind of titanic mentality to take on into a lot of evangelical Christians. Uh, do you guys know uh, the Left Behind book series? Yeah. Right? And then Kirk Cameron's movie called Left Behind. Okay. What is the premise of the movie? The premise of the movie is it believes in a form of dispensational premillennialism that says that even before the millennium, before the tribulation, Jesus is going to rapture his people. So if you watch the movie, if the movie begins with a scene, people are on airplanes, people are driving cars, and all of a sudden the rapture happens and pilots missing, babies are missing, and just clothes are everywhere. Because when you get raptured, you can't take your clothes with you. You know what I mean? And so everybody's gone, everybody's freaking out. And, oh, no, I've been left behind. You know? and, and, and in the 70s, there was this song like this, you know, a song like, you know, you know anyway. I, um, another book called uh, Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey was another popular book in the 70s. Really just fed this craze. But it was a fairly new teaching, by the way. This pre-trip rapture view with the world going to be, being deteriorated. It was not the view of the reformers, not the view of the church fathers, you know. It was a very dispensational teaching that John Nelson Darby made popular. Um, but it was that influence that made evangelical Christians say, what's the use of trying to reform the world? Let's just evangelize. Because the world is just going to get darker and darker. Now, you have to be careful because in many ways, already your presuppositions have been influenced by John Nelson Darby without you even knowing his name. Because there's a lot of people, even in the charismatic movement, man, in the charismatic movement, there is like a spectrum 
of end time views. Nobody knows what anybody believes in. Nobody agrees with each other. There's just so many. It's like a multi-ethnic, not multi-ethnic, multi-diverse confusion spectrum of views for the end times. But a lot of presuppositions are there. And one of those presuppositions is that the world's getting darker. So if Jesus is returning and the world is getting darker, what are you going to focus on? Just evangelize. Because that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Another, uh, another reason why uh, there was an abandonment of social action was the rise of the middle class. This pretty much says that uh, Christianity started to hit the middle class. And the middle class, instead of preserving the cultures and society, they, started, they just wanted to preserve their status quo. And so that also influenced evangelicals to stay away from any social action. Okay? So these are some of the reasons why there was this great reversal. Where we had this rich heritage of engaging society. But after the turn of the century, we abandon it. Now, I'm here to tell you that God is working on a new reversal. God is going to reverse the great reversal. Amen? Amen. There's, a king, there's a great kingdom reversal that's taking place right now. Now, we as evangelicals, we need to understand that the gospel of salvation, we're experts at the gospel of salvation, but we understand very little about the gospel of the kingdom. Let me explain. We have this one-dimensional perspective on advancing the kingdom. When we say advancing the kingdom, what do we immediately think of? Evangelism, missions, winning converts, adding them to the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God now advances as it grows in number. That's what we think of when we think of advancing the kingdom. But Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. Jesus didn't say your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. After your people go to heaven. He says your will be done. Your kingdom come. On earth. Now. As it is in heaven. When Jesus began his public ministry. He said repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. When Jesus stepped onto the earth, he marked a time in history where things will never be the same again. He was saying that the king's dominion, the kingdom of God has now arrived and it's going to increase. And the increase of his government will know no end. Do you, know, you hear what I'm saying? Biblically... Increase of Jesus' kingdom influence. Increase of Jesus' kingdom influence. His influence should be increasing. Increasing to the point of Jesus' return. Rather than uh, increasing, decreasing, increasing, decreasing, increasing, decreasing. Jesus, help! Okay, Jesus comes back. You hear what I'm saying? The increase of his government will know no end. That means it's supposed to go from glory to glory, from increase to increase, from strength to strength. To the point where it just climaxes and Jesus is like, oh, it's time to come down. (laughs) Now, 
let me get my theology straight. Okay, let me tell you straight, right? I don't believe that we're going to, as Christians, we're going to, like, take over all the nations and take over the whole world. I don't think that. Because we know that that's not going to happen until Jesus actually returns. But a lot of people think it's either or. It's all or nothing. They think they just have to wait until Jesus returns to start taking over the world and taking, taking dominion on the world. Or they think they just need to take dominion over the whole world and then Jesus will come. No, I see, I'm, I'm all about the momentum. See, I believe Jesus said when the Son of Man returns, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is saying, when I come back, what's the world going to look like? And I believe Jesus was confident because my people have been sprinkled in parts of the world, I know wherever they have been sprinkled, I'm going to find faith. I'm going to find righteousness. I'm going to find justice being made, injustices being confronted. I'm going to find good education systems, corruption-free businesses. I'm going to find what it looks like when I reign. You know what I mean? And I believe that what we do until Jesus returns, it builds the momentum for his return. So, you know, like some people question, well, what are some of these uh, guys in the charismatic movement? What do they really believe? And there's this thing called dominion theology, right? Do they believe that we're as Christians, as Christians, we have the potential to just take over the whole world? And, you know, take over the whole world. I don't know what that means, but you know, take over the whole world. And uh, I don't find that in the Bible. You know, I don't, I don't find that. So, I mean, all I know is Jesus wants to reign more than it is now. And it's going to reach this global scope when he returns. Now, this is only if you believe in a literal view of, of millennialism. If you, uh, pre, I'm sorry, if, you, if you're a premillennialist, that means you believe in a literal view of the millennium which is what's described in the book of Revelation as a thousand years in which Christ reigns on the earth. Okay? I believe in a literal view of the millennium. So I believe that Jesus, once he returns, he's going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to go global. It's just going to go global. Jesus is going to, I don't know, five first class. I don't know what he's going to do, right? It's going to be global. The church is going to just, just expand that dominion to the whole earth. Before some final battle, which I don't know what the sequence is there, okay? Man, I, you know what? I don't know. I don't know the whole sequence. I'm just ready to fight, okay? I, I just need to be ready to fight, and I'm trying to gear you all up because you, you could be ready to fight. Because you know what? You know what? I think God loves a good fight. Man, I don't, I, that's another message. I need to start, stay with my message. Okay, stay with my message. Stay with my message. Hallelujah. Now, uh, let, me, let me give you a practical breakdown of what this means for an Arminian and a Calvinist. Okay? So, for an Arminian, a person that believes that every, every person on the earth has the potential and the ability to say yes to the gospel. Um, an Arminian believes that every person can potentially get saved. Right? So, they, they believe that the victory of the kingdom lies in winning as many souls for heaven as possible. All right, stay with me. Come on. Taylor, I see you. Ashley, all right? Stay with me here. I'm trying to, I, I did this for you. For Armenian, they believe the victory lies in getting as many people to heaven as possible. 
But from my perspective, which is rooted in Calvinism, I believe the victory lies in the manifestation of the kingdom on earth through God's people. That's where the victory lies. That's where the glory lies, is the manifestation of Jesus' kingdom on earth through his people before Jesus arrives. That's where the victory is. That's what I believe, okay? Because as a Calvinist, I believe God's going to save his people no matter what. Meaning that those whom he has predestined unto salvation, he will lose none of them. Okay? Those whom he has placed his salvific love on, he's not going to fail to bring them home. You know, if you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus' words over and over again are very Calvinistic. The way he speaks to the Pharisees, very Calvinistic. He says, you guys are the sons of the devil. And Jesus, hey, isn't that a little harsh? Well, they are. They're the sons of the devil. And Judas, you're the son of perdition. I knew all about you from the beginning. God didn't choose you. But he knows who, those whom he has chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. Right, anyway, man, let's check this out. I mean, just read your Bible, okay? It's there. It's there. Just deal with it. You tell me where you land at, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying, God is not going to lose any of the people that he loves and he's chosen on salvation. So I believe that literally it's like a fixed number up there. And God's going to make sure they all come home. So for me, as a Calvinist, I evangelize not so that I can maximize the number of people that go to heaven, but so that I can lessen the time that the lost remain lost. I'm going to say that again, because that was a drop of revelation that you're going to need some time to process. As a Calvinist, I evangelize not to maximize or increase the number of people that get to go to heaven, but to lessen the time that the lost remain lost. Because for me, the glory of God on the earth, it depends on how his people represent him on the earth. And so the sooner we get them saved, the sooner we get them spirit-filled and discipled, it's the sooner that they begin to go out and destroy the works of the devil. Anybody with me here? And you don't have to agree. By the way, you don't have to agree. Hey, the Hankins, you don't have to agree, all right? You guys keep processing it, all right? Because this is is heavy stuff. Uh, Half the people in here don't even know what I'm talking about right now. It's okay. It's all right. It's okay. All right, one day you will re-listen to this message and then you get it, all right? Um, So, yeah, in terms of engaging society, I'm all for engaging society. Why do we want to engage society? Because there lies the glory of God. The more we are salt and light to the world, the more we manifest what it looks like when Jesus reigns in a city. Even, even when that city, like only 1% or maybe 0.5% of that city is a Christian. It doesn't matter. You don't need like a tipping point of 11% of the city to become Christian for that, for that city to start get, uh, manifesting the values of Jesus. Or manifesting what it looks like for Jesus to reign. You just need a remnant. You just need a remnant. You can have 1%. You can have 5%. You can have 0.5%. doesn't matter. As long as the remnant of the church there is being the church. 
reading their Bible, spirit-filled, stepping out boldly in faith and action and obedience, that remnant can radically change that city, can radically change a nation. Why? Because Jesus said the kingdom of God is like yeast. Just a little bit. And you work it through the dough, and the whole dough rises. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny little, you know, tiny little thing. But when it grows, the birds of the air rest on its branches. You guys have the, you have the seed of the kingdom in each of you. You guys are the yeast of the kingdom. And if you will really be the church that God wants you, if you stop doing cultural Christianity, stop just attending church, and start really being the church, if all you do is be yourself, evangelism will flow out of you. Just be yourself, and you will reform the education system. Be yourself. Now, yeah, yeah, you be yourself, but you also take initiative, like the um, Clapham sect, right? A William Overforce group, right? They, you got to take initiative too. But you know, be yourself as you take that initiative. And God will prosper you in everything you put your hands to. That's it right there. We got to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And there is one place just an hour away north of here that is a stark picture of what it looks like when a nation has systematically killed off all the Christians of that land. You want to see whether the church really is salt and light? Look at North Korea. Kim Il-sung systematically found every Christian in the country and they used to bulldoze them alive. You don't know the stories, go read up on it. Terrible ways to instill incredible fear into the people to never, ever touch Christianity. And look how North Korea is. It is a picture of a nation that has no salt or light whatsoever. But here's the good news. I believe it hit that season where God's like, you know what? No more of this. My people are, I'm going to sprinkle them in North Korea. I'm going to open up the doors. And we're going to see not only the most depraved nation in the world, we're going to see the most powerful testimony of a nation restored. Such a radical and hastened way. It's almost like a nation is like born in a day. North Korea will be healed, delivered, set free through the people of God. Let's take a sign. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much, God, that in this house, I see an army of mighty warriors. Warriors that take your word seriously. And Father, I pray that, Lord, that we will do the evangelism, we will do the missions, but we won't just stop there. We'll reach out to a lost and oppressed world 
whether they become Christian or not. We reach out to them to manifest your heart, to manifest your love, your goodness. Simply because that is who you are. And as your people, we want to manifest your heart. Lord Father, we pray that God, you break off all forms of stinginess, elitism, escapism in our hearts. Make us a people who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. A people that are making disciples and preaching the gospel, but at the same time, not deafening ourselves to the cries of the world for help. Not ignoring the oppression that's going on in our own backyard in this city. And Lord Father, Lord, our prayer and hope is that New Philadelphia Church as a remnant here in this huge city of 11 million people that this small church here will be like the yeast of the kingdom that will influence all various aspects of society here in Seoul. And this major metropolitan city would also go on to change and transform entire nation. God, we don't want to be known as the generation under whose watch millions of North Koreans continue to die, continue to starve, and continue to get oppressed for another generation. We don't want that to happen on our watch. Not on our watch, Lord. So give us your heart. Give us your power. Give us the vision to be the salt and light of this nation and of the nations. Father, we just thank you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.